The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me with Mark Tepper, who I know a lot of you have probably seen doing the media rounds, especially with Fox Business. Mark, interested in the audience, who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Yeah, what's up, Michael? Hey, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. A little background on myself. I had been a wealth manager now for a little over 20 years. I think I got in the business at the end of 2001. I started off working for a few shops, which were a little too sales focused. They were, you know, was back then it was all about selling products for commissions. I jumped around to a few different places, eventually decided just to open my own firm. And I'm running a, about a, just under a $2 billion RIA now headquartered in Cleveland. I got about 25 to 30 employees across the country, work with clients all over the country. You may have seen me on CNBC back in the day. I did that from like 2010 through 2019. And then I hopped off CNBC and switched over to Fox at the end of 2019. So I've been on Fox Business and Fox News since then. Yeah, happy to be here to to talk with all of you. You find most wealth managers are just good salesmen in disguise? Yeah. So you know what? I mean... This business in general, it, it, you've got a bunch of asset gatherers, right? And, and they get they get compensated to go out and find assets, and then they plug their clients into a, a very passively managed portfolio of passive ETFs. They very rarely go overweight, underweight, even sectors, let alone pick individual stocks. So, yeah, I mean, I think the majority of the industry, without a doubt, is made up of a bunch of asset gatherers who are, who are good at, you know, selling themselves, selling, you know, financial planning or whatever it may be, but they have absolutely no clue about how to manage money. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you just from my own experience, and I, you know, I present all over the country, presenting at CIVA chapters, and I meet so many investment advisors, FAs, and I'm always blown away by the lack of uh, real intellectual rigor in terms of the way they think about markets. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, I think there's something to be said about that you know, having a team that's comprised of individuals who are actually living in the trenches, you know, and, and actually studying stock research day in, day out, or like like your strategies, you know, following some sort of a rules-based investment strategy that can enable a person and a, a company to actually, you know, cut through a lot of the noise and, and figure out what really moves stocks, what moves, you know, macroeconomics, what moves individual company stocks, you know, identifying whether or not there's dislocations in valuations, 
yeah, I mean, I think it certainly makes sense to uh, to work with a team of people that, that actually know a little bit about what they're talking about or hopefully quite a bit. All right. So let's go with one thing you just mentioned, which is what really moves stocks. I think cynically, most people say, well, really moves stocks is the Fed. Um, yeah, I'm a little cynical on that narrative myself. I often find the Fed tends to follow, not lead. And it's just interesting to kind of think through this in the context of what happened last week. We're going to bring it out to the the macro and and think yep. about allocation broadly. But I, I want to get your take on what happened the last you know five trading days. It was a hell of a move for both stocks and bonds. I happen to think that coincided with the name of the space. One of these is wrong. Yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's super interesting, man. Because you know, investors overall have a very short term memory, in my opinion. You know, there's not a lot of people who, even if they've been investing for twenty, thirty years, not a lot of them remember the 90s, you know, the early 2000s, you know, most people, they remember what happened last year, the year before, maybe two, three years ago, max. And then they kind of, that becomes their new normal. And then they start to apply that new normal into the future. And if you think about it, I mean, since 2008 or nine, when when the Fed cut rates to zero for, you know, maybe the first time ever, first time in a long time, people now believe that 0% Fed funds rates, that's normal. They believe that 3 to 4% mortgages are normal. And neither of those things are normal. I mean, that was kind of an anomaly kind of period that lasted from 2008 or 9 through 2021 before the Fed started finally hiking. I think we're probably closer to what normal looks like, maybe a little, maybe rates a little lower from where they are now. But yeah, so there's this, this recency bias, this short-term memory that investors have where they kind of conceptualize their own normal. And the normal over the course of that time frame has been the Fed put, right? As soon as the market starts to go haywire, the Fed's got to put, they're going to step in and they're going to they're gonna protect the downside. And that's, I feel like we've gotten past that to the point where that Fed put really isn't as powerful as it used to be. Maybe it's, maybe it's not even there. I mean, given the fact that inflation's still running at twice the rate of the Fed's mandate, I don't know that the Fed's going to, to hop in and just start cutting rates again. But that's definitely what investors follow. And when you see a, a disastrous payroll report, the jobs report Friday of last week at 150,000, and we can go into this later, but that 150,000 is a made up number as it is. So it's a low number if it were real, but it's not even a real number. So they look at that 150,000 jobs numb and they're like, oh, this is great. This is like their Goldilocks scenario, right? This is where the economy is not moving into a recession yet, but the economy is not so hot the Fed's going to have to hike anymore. This is great. They're going to cut four times next year. And that's almost what's being priced into the Fed fund futures market right now. It's like, I don't know, maybe 3.6, 3.8 cuts next year. Now, if that's the case, if we cut three to four times next year, that to me implies recession. The Fed, I don't believe the Fed is going to cut rates just because investors expect normal rates to be a lot lower. I don't think they're going to do that. So you have that on one side of the equation. The other side of the equation shows that earnings are expected to grow just under 12% in 2024, corporate earnings, and again, another 12% in 2025. So Look, there's no way both of those can happen. Somebody's wrong here. It's either the the Fed fund futures or it's Wall Street analysts who are expecting 12% earnings growth over the next two years. 
So you kind of got to pick your, you got to pick your poison, figure out which of the two are, are more accurate. Me personally, I'm a little more bearish. I don't see how we're going to hit 12% earnings growth the next two years, especially if a recession is in the cards for some time in, in 2024. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting to just watching the way things played out last week. So it, it seemed like there was the hope that they're going to cut rates. That's why small cap started really rocketing. Yep. Right. Because small caps are going to be most leveraged to that because there's a lot of zombie companies. There's a refund. No doubt. Coming, right. So, but yeah. And now it's only one day, but today that's reversing, you know, fairly substantial on a relative basis to large caps. So it does make sense to me that if you're going to save small caps, you have to not have a recession and you probably need to have rates a lot lower. But then again, it goes back to what you're saying. If rates are a lot lower, what's the implication there? So it does seem like the broader market's initial knee jerk reaction uh, doesn't make really much sense. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. It doesn't. It doesn't. And, and you know, it, as we've already covered, it, the market does believe that, you know, the market moves in response to what they believe the Fed is going to do. I mean, you, you, you can definitely see that. I don't think that's right. I don't think the market has the right interpretation of what the Fed's going to do. But that's how the that's how investors have been positioning themselves. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, over the course of the next 12 to 15 months, I think investors are, are they're going to have to wake up to this new reality that that normal that they thought was normal is not normal. Right. And, and you know, maybe a four and a half percent Fed funds rate and mortgages at six, six and a half percent. Maybe that's the new normal or maybe that's the long term normal. And, and I think investors are going to have to wake up to that because. Consumers overall have become very addicted to cheap debt over the course of the last 15 years. And that's addictive, man. I mean, you just look at all like the stimmy checks that people got, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic throughout. And what happens when people are, are having free money dropped in their lap? And I witnessed this in Miami, went on a vacation with my family down to Miami. And man, oh man, this is probably May of 2021. Man, oh man, did I see some people down there who I, I don't I don't know if they'd ever been there before. I don't know how they afforded to get there, but I'd have to assume stimmy checks. And once you ratchet up your lifestyle, once you increase your standard of living, that's addictive. And it becomes very difficult for people to scale back and ratchet down when that supply of free money or that supply of cheap money is removed from the equation. And that is part of the issue I'm seeing right now. You go back to like last holiday shopping season in 2022, it was pretty decent. But normally come that following January, so January of this year of 2023, normally that credit card debt that spikes up in November and December gets fully paid off by the end of the month in January. In 2023, it did not get paid off. And that's the first time it did not get paid off since I believe 2008 or 2009. So that what that means to me is that consumers right now, they're addicted to that, that cheap money. They're addicted to free money. 
They've ratcheted up their lifestyles. They're not quite willing to, to ratchet down just yet. So they're spending a lot on credit cards and that you know calls into question a whole different set of risks as we talk about potential credit events down the road. Which is interesting because you would think that the higher credit card interest rate, the higher minimum payments, so that at some point will cause a change of behavior. Maybe it just hasn't been in place for long enough to cause that habit to change. But it is interesting that you're entering you know, the holiday season and guess what? Retailers still look like they've done absolutely nothing for a long time you know, outside yeah. of Amazon. Without a doubt, man. And, and you know, from a behavioral change standpoint, you know, I, look, at some point you run out of Peters to rob to pay Paul. There's only so many Peters out there to rob, right? And if you're a, let's say you're in the lower quintile of household income, you're probably getting close to being maxed out on your credit cards. You don't have credit cards with $25,000 limits. Your credit cards might have $2,500 limits. And maybe you have two, maybe three of them. And people is probably getting pretty close to being tapped out there. And that's why I think consumer sentiment numbers stink. That's why when you look at the small business optimism numbers, which you know, I'm, I'm a small business owner myself. I, you know, small businesses employ 50% of the private workforce. I'm a big believer that small businesses tend to be canaries in the coal mine as it comes to turning points in the economy. And small businesses aren't very confident right now. So, I mean, you look at all that stuff and it's like, okay, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of small businesses and consumers maybe as well are starting to realize that at some point, we got to pay the piper. And it's not just the consumer that has to pay the piper, or you, the U.S. government has to pay the piper. Corporate debt that needs to be refinanced at higher rates, corporations got to pay the piper. So, you know, this end of an era of free money or cheap money, it's going to wreak some havoc, in my opinion. Let's talk about how you implement that just on a firm level. So you've got the $2 billion in assets. Is it being run according, according to certain models? Every advisor has their own... Style? What was the no. makeup of the way this is done? Yeah. All right. So it's all company based. We have three individual equity strategies that form kind of the the crux of of every single one of our clients' portfolios. So it's either a select equity strategy, which is more of a growth at a reasonable price. We have a growth and income strategy, which is essentially a dividend strategy. Every single company in there has to pay a dividend, or else we can't consider it for that portfolio. Typically more for like our pre-retiree or recently retired clients. Uh, and then we have a contrarian strategy, you know, that's uh, definitely much more bearish, did very well last year, underperforming this year, because this year, I mean, you've got seven companies that have the market up, you know, what, maybe 10, 11% so far year to date. But we have those three different strategies. And within those three strategies, at any given point in time, the maximum amount of cash we can hold in any of those three equity strategies is 20%. Okay. So I, I want everyone to understand that when you're managing, we're not a hedge fund. We do not go all in on our, our base case by any means. Since I'm bearish, that does not mean I'm 100% in cash. That does not mean I'm only in consumer staples, utilities, and healthcare companies right now, right? It doesn't mean that. We still have to manage diversified strategies. Most we can have within each of those three equity strategies is 20% cash. We're probably about halfway there right now. We're probably at about 10. But then outside of those equity strategies, if we have clients that are more bearish or more conservative, we might have 50% of their total money in cash outside of that strategy. You see what I'm saying? So it's it's not just about 
how much cash we have within the strategy uh, from a, a balance sheet standpoint for the individual client. It's more or less, you know, kind of looking at it and saying, all right, well, we're pretty bearish, but we still want to have you in this growth and income strategy or our value strategy or our growth at a reasonable price strategy. So we're going to build up some cash reserves over here on the sideline. But we can never ever, Michael, we can't go all in on a, a bearish call. We can't go all in on a bullish call. We have to be selective. We have career risk with every single investment decision we make. And, you know, if the market's up, let's say it finishes up 12% this year and, and we're down 10% because we took a very bearish position, we will lose a lot of clients. If the market is up 12% and we are up 10%, our clients are, you know, they're probably going to be okay with that, that we're in the ballpark. If the market's up 12% and we are up 24%, some of our clients might thank us, but they're not going to be beating down the door and pounding up the phones, calling us to thank us, you know? So I just want to be very clear as a diversified wealth management firm, we'll take our base case scenario, which is bearish. That'll cause us to overweight more defensive sectors, identify companies that fit our thesis, maybe with pricing power strong balance sheets, high levels of cash, low levels of debt that need to be refinanced. We'll incorporate all that into managing a strategy that still begins with the S&P sector weightings as a starting point. And then we overweight, underweight from there and then pick individual securities in each sector. How challenging has it been to manage expectations with clients this year? I mean, I talk to advisors all day long and everybody's got the same problem, right? You have any kind of asset allocation mix? You're underperforming the S&P. The S&P is largely seven names. Most stocks have really done nothing all year. Totally counter to the pre-election year cycle dynamic to begin with. You know, and, and most individual investors, I mean, you can probably assess this directly. You know, they don't understand nuance. Yeah, they don't. They don't. And, and I, I'll tell you personally, when you look at our portfolios and you look at the, uh, you know, the, the market capitalization of the seven biggest companies, we, we definitely do not hold all of them at their weightings. I mean, we're, I think we're pretty far underweight Apple in particular, which is the biggest weight in the S&P 500. I don't, I don't see that it, it's really worth a 27, 28 times uh, forward multiple when they really haven't innovated for over a decade. They've become, become more of a company that focuses on financial engineering at this point than product engineering. And I really can't see why they're, how they're going to be able to continue to trade at that multiple. And I do expect that at some point they're going to have to re-rate lower. And in fact, if you kind of go back through you know, every single decade, I mean, you go back to the 90s, what was the key theme? Well, it was probably personal computing. Who were the biggest performers? Well, probably Hewlett Packard, right? HP. Then the following decade, they didn't do as well, right? And, and there's always those kind of key readers. I think Apple was probably, you know, the company of the 2010s. And now you look forward into the 2020s. And I think that big theme is more or less going to be AI as we've seen play out so far this year. But when it comes to managing our, our clients' expectations, it is, it's, look, our job is to manage risk. And I think with a lot of, you know, based on what I've read from you, Michael, and I don't know everything about your strategies, but it seems like, I mean, you do a very good job managing risk as well. And sometimes we are- Not, not, to, not to cut you up. This, this is an important uh, point. The concept of managing risk the last two years has been upended because as you know, as we all know, right? You haven't seen that counter, not in terms of necessarily stocks and bonds, but in terms of treasuries against credit spreads widening, which we'll talk about at some point, but that's been the missing ingredient for really managing 
default risk, which is yet to come. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's look. There's, I think, there's a lot of key issues or potential issues on the horizon out there right now. But you know, the the whole client expectation question, kind of getting back to that, it, it's a tough one to manage. I mean, we don't have Apple as a seven percent position. We're, we're probably, I mean, we hold somewhere around like depending on the strategy, somewhere between forty and sixty stocks in each of those strategies. I think our largest holding in any of them is probably maybe three-ish percent. So we're definitely not at six, seven percent Apple, Microsoft or anything like that. But when you're looking at this market this year, to your earlier point, I mean, if you owned the other 493 stocks in the S&P, according to their cap weightings, you're negative this year. Like the, the Magnificent Seven, a few months ago, I was talking about how they, they contributed 80% of the year's market returns. It's 100% now. Or at least last time I checked Thursday or whatever last week, it was over 100%. So, and this is, in my opinion, what's going on right now is this is, this isn't a, you know, blockbuster economy. It's not a blockbuster stock market. This is the entire move of the stock market this year just seems to be fueled off the AI frenzy, the AI hype. I don't know how long that'll remain the case at some point that the novelty of that could begin to wear off a little bit. I do think it's a big theme over the course of, you know, the rest of this decade. But, you know, at, at some point, investors are going to want to see the results from AI. They're not just going to pay a higher multiple because of the dream. And, and that's where managing client expectations becomes, you know, a little difficult. Fortunately, you know, and I don't know if, if you know how many other people on this meeting right now are wealth managers or whatnot, but it, it is important in our business to set reasonable expectations up front. And to make sure you're working with the right clients for the way you specifically manage money, you know, and maybe you're working with people who they, they tell you, look, man, all I want are singles, maybe the occasional double. I don't want to strike out. I, as a wealth manager, then have to decide, OK, is that a good client for me and my strategy? Yeah, he could fit one of our strategies. Right. So I think a lot of it is really, you know, we all right. So one of your first questions. A lot of people in this business are salespeople and they are good at gathering assets and they will take any assets that, that will walk through the door. Anyone that can fog a mirror, they will work with that person. Having you know been in this business now for over 20 years, I want to do the right thing for the client. And it's amazing how it actually works, Mike, when you're looking to bring on new clients. When you start to qualify and disqualify prospective clients and ask the questions to figure out, do I have the right solution for this individual, for this family, or would they be better off going elsewhere? And when you really actually, in that prospecting process, try to focus on what do they want and do I have that as a solution to their problem, I think you're going to have clients that have very realistic expectations and they're going to be, you know, quote unquote, well-behaved clients for you. Of course, we have to invest going forward. So just going to the, the GARP growth of reasonable price uh, side of things, have there been, has it been harder or easier to find, you know, growth at a reasonable price type of stock in this time environment? It's been hard. You know, those 493 companies are, are negative on the year, right? And, and no matter how much we tell clients that we, this is not an S&P 500 strategy, right? That's not what this is about. The Main Street millionaire client, you know, someone's got a million, two million, maybe three million bucks. All they know is the S&P. 
So no matter, you know, they're they're always going to hold uh, somewhat accountable to the S&P 500. But yeah, it has been harder to find those growth at a reasonable price companies. Valuations have certainly been a little bit out of control, a little bit out of whack. But hopefully we start to see better opportunities over the course of the next few years. You know, I think one of our one of our best picks so far this year from a performance standpoint has been uh, Cameco, which is a it's the largest sourcer of uranium uh, in North America. So we kind of started to diversify our energy position away from just your standard oil and gas plays and started to incorporate more like, you know, nuclear. Right. I mean, that's kind of our quote unquote clean energy play Cameco. And that's been a home run for us. But, you know, for every home run like that, you're going to have a lot of singles, doubles, and you're going to have some strikes, right? I mean, no matter how great any investment manager's process is, their research is, nobody picks them right all the time, you know, and there's always going to be mistakes. And I think one of the keys in managing risk is being able to call out your L and take an L, sell the damn thing and, and move on, right? And live to, to fight another day. On the um, contrarian side of, of the different portfolios you're running, what are some of the, the bigger, more contrarian things that, that you're putting some positions on? I don't run that one. Um, I'm less involved. Colin uh, Simons, who's actually on, on the meeting right now, he runs most of that. Let me, uh, let me see if I can find a few of the positions in here. So this happens to be, uh, we actually have cons- consumer discretionary at a 0% weighting right now. In that, in that value strategy, obviously, you know, the consumer being tapped out plays into that thesis. Definitely very heavy on defensive. So healthcare, consumer staples. I mean, healthcare and consumer staples are the two biggest sectors in here. We're talking about almost 45% weighting in those two sectors. Now, those two sectors are down on the year. They are consumer staples, healthcare, utilities are probably three of the four worst performing sectors this year throw in real estate and you got all four of them. However, when you start to look towards positioning for next year, healthcare is probably my favorite sector for next year. So, you know, a few that we've gotten here, let's see, Biogen, Cigna Group. So, you know, there's a few names that you don't always hear the Wall Street analysts talking about. You probably don't hear much about these kind of names on CNBC. They're not quite the household Merck Pfizer names that, that everyone's familiar with and, and Novo Nordisk, which everyone's become familiar with in this ozempic obsession that the country suddenly has. So, you know, they're, they're not small names by any means, but they are some names that are, you know, not quite your big, huge, super duper, big pharma household names. So everybody, please make sure you follow Mark here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. And as always, it's will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live. So I got to give you credit, Mark, because yeah, I've seen some of your segments on Fox. I've, you know, I've done the Fox business side. I used to actually be on with Maria Bartiromet uh, on the floor for many years. Oh, no kidding. You see, no, uh, I used to interact with her quite a bit. But the but one thing which strikes me, and I give you credit actually for you know, taking this approach, is it seems to me that you go beyond just talking about market and investing. Some of the commentary is political. Some of it is yeah. outside of sort of the standard thing. And, and you know, in our business, that's often kind of, I think most people shy away from that because, you know, they want, to your point about asset gathering, right? They want all kinds of assets and clients and they don't want to say something that might offend a prospective investor going forward, right? So right. they tend to not put their voice out there and provide an opinion. Was that always sort of your approach to media or is that kind of a more recent way that you're putting yourself out there? I want to say, 
All right. So I started doing CNBC, I think in like 2010. And I got to tell you, man, I sucked at it. I was terrible. I, I was so concerned about the information that I was communicating. That's all I cared about. I didn't care about how to deliver it, how to make sure it, you know, people understood it. It was PE ratio this, you know, it was rough. Probably around 2015 or 2016. I'm like, man, this sucks. I'm only doing this like once or twice a month. It really took a lot for me to kind of take my client servicing hat off and put the CNBC hat on once or twice a month. It was difficult. You know, it'd take a lot of prep to get ready for those to make sure I was on my toes and, and ready to respond. So I actually quit in 2015 or 16 for the summer. Didn't expect to hear from them ever again, but they reached out like in September of that year. And they're like, hey man, summer's over. Can we get you back on? And can we get you on every week regularly? And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, sounds kind of cool. Like at least I can gain some momentum if I'm doing it every week and doing it once a week or twice a week or three times a week. It's, it was going to take the same amount of work that, that it was taking me for, do, for me doing it once a month. So I made the decision at that point all right, if I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to say whatever the hell I'm thinking, whatever I'm feeling. Some people are going to love me. Other people are going to hate me. And that's okay. You know, I'd rather go through life like that than kind of being right down the middle of the fairway every time. And everyone's like, yeah, he's an okay dude. You know, I don't love him. I don't hate him. He's all right. So I didn't want to do that. So I lost the tie, started wearing, you know, louder sport coats. And just made a decision to say whatever I was feeling and, and to really be authentic and, and to approach TV in the way that I've approached life since, you know, probably right after college where I wanted to go through life like a magnet, right? Be myself and you're going to attract people that you want to be around and you're going to repel just like magnets do people that you don't want to be around. And, you know, that was all part of, you know, kind of the, you know, the transition from the Obama years to Trump to people, you know, on, on Twitter, when it was called Twitter, saying he's not my president. And then that going to Biden, politics influences money. And we subscribe to political research, which helps us to take certain positions in our portfolios. I mean, you don't just hop into chemical energy for the fun of it. There has to be some sort of green energy research that you've read, which says that solar farms are twice as expensive as nuclear, that wind farms are three times as expensive as nuclear. Nuclear is the most efficient way. You know, like there's got to be research that's out there. And for me, I want to let people know what I'm thinking. I want, I'm not going to beat around the bush. And that is going to help me to attract clients who think similarly and who want those views reflected in their investment strategy. So by taking that strong position, I'm going to turn a lot of people off. I'm going to push a lot of people away. But those people that are remaining, they are going to be raving fans of what I do and what my company can do for them. Which makes total sense. I, I, I used that line before, better be loved by few than liked by many. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. Get those That's really great. hardcore fans, right? But yeah, I think in that transition where some of your existing clients surprised, cheering you on, did you lose any? You know, because that's not easy, I think, when you've, you're trying to build a business and you've established yourself as this professional and suddenly they see you, you know, talking in a way that may not be what they perceive as professional. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, look, we have, I mean, there have been some clients that we've lost along the way because of that. There have been some prospective clients we've lost along the way. We have a, we have an advisor who, who spent several years building up a Bay Area office for us. Great advisor, very smart dude, CFA, you know, lot, lots of experience doing due diligence on alternative investments and things like that, that a lot of these, you know, higher net worth people are interested in, especially out in the Bay Area where there's so much talk about, you know, venture capital and private equity and things like that. And there were competitive situations where the clients just, the prospective clients were not on board with our political leanings by any means. So, and, you know, we've lost a few, but we've gained a hell of a lot more than we've lost. I think it's been a good move for us as a firm. You know, we've kind of positioned ourselves as the, as a, a firm that if you are, you know, at least right of center, you're probably going to agree with our political research, which will be reflected in our holdings in every single one of our strategies. And look, I, th- I think at the end of the day, you lose some, but you win a lot more. Yeah, you know, like that, I give you credit for it. You know, I'm very public in, in, in saying very clearly what people see on X as a persona. I'm obviously much more professional when I talk to people one on one, but oh, yeah. there, there is something to be said about sort of being consistent both on the persona side and on the oh, yeah. one-on-one conversation side. Without a doubt, man. Yeah. And it's, look, I mean, on X, sometimes you're trying to just create a character, right? You're trying, sometimes I'll put things out there. I'm like, all right, like maybe this will, maybe it'll be a hit. It's going to ruffle some feathers. It's going to poke the bear a little bit, you know? But yeah, when I'm talking to a client face-to-face, it's more or less like, hey, like I get it. Like I, I hear where you're coming from. I disagree. I think this is, so yeah, I think you're a little more delicate in, in the way you're communicating when you're sitting across the table from a client face-to-face. I am curious. I mean, getting to $2 billion, you know, it's not huge, but certainly not small. And the wealth management side of things, uh, what was that journey like? Was there a set of years where it just kind of really exploded? You know, the, the referral side of the business is often how you raise assets, but that's a very big grind, right? So how do you get to $2 billion? Yeah, and we actually, I've probably sold off about, in today's dollars, I would assume 500 to 700 million over the course of that time frame, And that was advisors who we had to part ways with. They were no longer a good fit for our culture and sold them their books on the way out. Kind of cleared those people out of the company along the way. But look, we are a firm that we have built ourselves so that we can employ those asset gatherers that I talked about who can go out there, teach seminars, talk to the people that reach out, you know, through the website or call us because they've seen me on TV. We have those asset gatherers and they let the prospective client know they're not the expert. I'm here to be your relationship manager. So we have those people going out and we've built the team behind the asset gatherers to make sure that the asset gatherer gets to do what he or she does best. And that is talk to prospects and clients. We have a team of five CFAs. We have a team of I don't know, five to seven CFPs building out the plans and looking at asset allocation and things like that. We have an in-house JD. We have an in-house CPA. So we've, what we've done, Michael, is we've 
on, on the wealth management side of things, we've taken more or less like the family office model, which the multifamily office model typically available for people that have at least 10 million, if not 20 million or higher of investments to, to bring into that firm. They get, you know, kind of a one-stop shop for their legal issues, for, you know, their tax issues, bill pay sometimes. That's all part of the multifamily office model. We've kind of built that out and democratized it. And we've made let's say 80 to 90% of what those multifamily office models provide to their $20 million clients, we have, we are providing 80 to 90% of that now to the main street millionaire that has a few million bucks. And we've kind of carved out a niche for ourselves. Those are our bread and butter clients. You know, that's really what keeps the lights on. Me personally, I tend to work with people, you know, five, 10 million and above, but as a firm, you know, we're, we're working with that main street millionaire. And I think our, our value prop to those clients is it's pretty strong, you know? And then again, just the way the firm was set up, like I said, allowing asset gatherers to be asset gatherers and not to be salespeople who pretend like they manage money or pretend like they can build financial plans when they really don't know anything about how to build a plan or pick a stock. Dummy down. Tell people you don't know the answer to that. You'll bring the smarter guy into the next meeting. And people respect that. You know, it actually, it, it works wonders when you're actually just an honest human being and you do what you're best at and you have a team behind you that can help out in the areas that you're not strong in. Do you have sort of a, a bigger, longer-term ver- uh, vision for the company? I'm just curious. I mean, you know, obviously you want to keep growing, but yeah, you know, there's headaches the more you grow, right? So is there some point where you say to yourself, you know what, I'm comfortable. I'm going to yeah, think about other things to do or just coast and enjoy life or, you know, talk about sort of your own ambitions. Yeah. So we're going to keep growing it. I, I, I'm wired to win, man. I'm very competitive. I love to win. I was a, uh, a high school baseball player, college baseball player, pitcher, tore my rotator cuff freshman year of college. So I was done after that, but I, I just love to win and I'm not done winning. I don't know. I'm 43 years old, you know, maybe, maybe when I'm 60, I'll think about hanging it up. But, you know, I intend on making this thing as big as I possibly can. I was actually, I was at a, um, I was in Tucson, Arizona a couple weeks ago at this, at this retreat, like a wellness retreat that I went to with a group of business owners that I've known for like, you know, 15 years now. And I started to do the math on what it would take for me to become a billionaire one day. And I started to do the math. I pulled out, you know, the old financial calculator and I'm like, that's ah, only like 17% growth for a year. I can easily do that. Right. So look, I've got big ambitions. I don't know that, you know, being a billionaire is really what I need to do in life. I don't know that it's really what I want to do because obviously as you're, Michael, as you know, man, as you're building a company, as you're building investment strategies, you never have perfect work-life balance. You know, nobody ever does. There's a lot of people to talk about, you know, striving for perfect work-life balance, but nobody really ever has it. You're either working too much or you're living life too much, you know, and it's kind of like a, a seesaw, a teeter-totter, right? You kind of go back and forth. But yeah, I mean, from a long-term perspective, look, man, I, you know, my kids are 16, 14, and 12. You know, maybe at some point, one of them will want to join my company. They will not be given my company, but they can certainly join and learn and things like that. So, you know, I think being there for that mentorship could be kind of cool. But at the same point in time, man, uh, I don't know if you have kids or not, but I also am not going to try to convince any of my three kids to to enter 
the wealth management business, the investment business. If they want to do it, the door's open. They can certainly come in. Um, and I'd love to, you know, spend some extra quality time with them on the business side of things. But, you know, I want my kids to pursue something that, that they're passionate about. So look, continuing to grow it, I'd say I got another, you know, 15 plus years in the tank and, you know, we'll kind of see where it goes from there. Okay. I do see, Mark, you've got a couple of books as well, if I'm not mistaken. I am curious about that. The, uh, it's not easy to write a book, let alone several. <laughs> so talk about that process and you know, what was sort of the objective in, in wanting to write books to be honest. So I talked about the, uh, you know, wanting to be a magnet, right? The way I kind of live my life, the way I've approached my media appearances and, and just the way I, I communicate with prospective clients. The very first book I wrote was Walk Away Wealthy and it was geared towards business owners that I had been working with for years. So I belong to entrepreneurs organization and young presidents organization. So there's probably 50,000 business owners around the United States that belong to those two organizations. And what I noticed was that a lot of those, a lot of business owners, they were running companies worth 20 million, 50 million, a hundred million dollars. And they really didn't have much in the form of liquid investments. You know, these are guys who, you know, they're EBITDA seven million a year and, you know, they're sitting on a couple hundred grand in their 401k. And, and I looked at that and I'm like, man, like these, they've got different challenges than that Main Street millionaire. And they do. You know, these are people who they've got this baby, this business they've built. And then one day, $50 million falls in their lap when they decide to exit and actually have a liquidity event. So I wrote that book for them. I said, when I was done, I'll never write another book. And I, Look at, look at me now. I've written two more after that. And I've got a, another one on the way called Bidenomics Exposed, which should be out in January, which just kind of talks about a lot of the, the economic policies that are in place right now and how they are setting us up to actually reduce our returns over the course of the next several years if we don't, if we don't correct those policies. The latest book I wrote was by far my best and my favorite. It's called The Money Playbook. Wrote that for professional athletes. I actually had a Big time NBA player who was a multiple max contract guy reach out a few years ago, flew down to see him. He picked me up in his Rolls Royce from the airport and we're, we're going to dinner uh, to meet with him, his agents, his team. And he, while I'm sitting in the passenger seat, he took an investment call from a guy. Some guy was pitching him on something and he didn't know what he was doing, didn't know how to respond. And I'm like, man, like these guys, man, they're getting, you know, they're, they're getting pitched investment ideas, you know, invest in their buddy's bar, you know, dumb ideas all the time. And they don't really have a buffer. They don't have a personal CFO who can kind of vet those opportunities and be comfortable being the bad guy, right? No, he's not going to invest in this. So I wrote that book, by far my best book, very entertaining. Most of the people listening right now are probably not professional athletes, but look, I think it's, I think it's a great book. You can apply everything in that book to you know, a, a, someone that's got a just normal run of the mill job or, or owns a business today. Fun book, but it is hard, man. It, and, and the issue is it takes a lot of time. And with this Bidenomics exposed book, I'm like, I'm grinding on this one right now because it's, there's a, it's time sensitive, you know, with the money playbook, man, I think that took me like three years during the pandemic to write. It was okay because nothing in there was that time sensitive. Bidenomics exposed. From what I can tell, there's about 365-ish days until the 2024 election. So, you know, this thing, I got to make sure this is out by January 1st um, so that it's still relevant. 
And that one has been one hell of a grind because I've been working on it now for about three or four months really hard. And this, assuming I can get it done and ready to go by January 1st, this will have been the fastest turnaround on a book ever for me, which is, you know, it's tough because it's not my full-time job. You know, I, obviously I'm doing others. Running a wealth management charm is my full-time gig. So this is it's a project on the side and, you know, hopefully it, uh, it draws some interest. And obviously, Michael, as you're probably aware, the main idea of all of these books I've written and including Bidenomics Exposed, sure, it's to educate people, but I also want to, I might get clients out of it. I, I'm not in the business of selling millions of books. I, you know, first of all, I would never be able to sell millions of books. Second of all, not a lot of people who do that. And I don't know how much money you'd actually make if you were, you know, even not a New York Times bestseller, but let's just say a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I, I don't think you could make a, a career out of just doing that. So my, my main goal is to educate prospective clients and hopefully get them to want to move the ball across the goal line with us and, and engage in a conversation. The question that I was trying to ask, you sent me DM, it's actually, I think a good one in terms of just the industry said, you know, Large language models look like they can ought to be most repetitive rules-based tasks, tasks, tax, asset allocation, bill pay, et cetera. As those back office tasks get automated, how do you see your business and the industry evolving over the next five to eight years? That's interesting. I just saw over the weekend that the chat GPT failed the CFA exam. So I think we all, we've got a lot of little bit of job security right now. But yeah, I mean, look, I think a lot of, you know, industry-wide, I, I don't know yet how to incorporate all of these language models, artificial intelligence, machine learning. I don't know yet how to incorporate all of this. I've got a buddy who's actually, he's part of, he's part of this conversation right now, who has a, he's got a pretty badass machine learning system that he was using and I'm probably going to re-engage a conversation with him to just figure out, you know, what it would look like within our business. But I'm going to sidestep this question a little bit and say that I think there's a career path. There is a future for entrepreneurs who want to get into artificial intelligence consulting, right? And, and meeting with wealth management firms and saying, hey, we already know all the different language models and this and that, machine learning, AI we can help you to integrate all of these into your business. So I don't know yet. We are just kind of starting to explore some of these opportunities, but I'm sure it's going to change the game. And I think the best way for us to, to figure it out would really be for some consultant to be able to help us, you know, along the way. I doubt that's, doubt it's going to happen anytime soon, but yeah, look, we want to stay on the cutting edge of all this new AI technology. I, I do think, you know, from one standpoint though, if, once I'm concerned about this within our industry, once once everyone is using AI to, to pick stocks, to, you know, sell out of stocks and move into treasuries or whatever their model is, when everyone has access to the same information, how do you outperform? That's been my question. So I'm a little concerned about whether or not it's going to still enable us to outperform. And I'm sure it will. I'm sure it's just kind of, you know, the, you know, a fear of the unknown thing for me. but. We're at the point now where there's be you're, you're beginning to see some opportunities with those different um, technologies, and we're just hoping to start trying them out probably as we kind of roll into 2024. Mark, for those who want to track more of your thoughts, more of your work, aside from X, 
Fox Business, any of the places that you'd point up to? Most of my communication is done on X. So yeah, just give me a follow there. I will be, I'm going to be rolling out a new podcast. Um, I've done weeklies in the past and then just kind of pulled myself away from them because I wasn't able to stay in touch. But it's called Fired Up. Mark Tepper's Fired Up. It will be coming out January 2nd, January 3rd. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, most of my communication will continue through X. So follow me there, Mark Tepper. SWP. Again, folks, this will be in the podcast probably a couple of days here. But please uh, give Mark a follow. Check him out, obviously, on Fox Business when he's there. And hopefully I will see you all uh, later in the week on a number of spaces wind up podcast. Uh, thank you, Mark. Appreciate it, Michael. Talk to you soon, man. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.